words of God for us tonight from Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. So in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. And that is the reading of God's word. Take a moment and turn to somebody and say hello to them, and then we will open up the book of Zechariah. Start figuring out where the book of Zechariah is. It's near the very end of the Old Testament. By the way, I, um, I only received one from, actually I received some questions by email, but in terms of somebody turning in an old piece of paper asking a question about the last series, I got one question, and it didn't get to me through the offering until after last week. So if, if you wrote a question, and you think, Dan, he never answered that question, um, it was a clarification one. Grab me afterwards, and I can do that for you. didn't have a name on it, but um, I didn't want anybody to think I was avoiding it. Um, so there we go. I don't know if anything these things apply to you tonight, but um, do you ever look back and think that the best has already come and gone in your life? That may be a question only a few of us had. I know when I turned 60, I started thinking about that. What has God got in front of me? Um, perhaps that's not you, but maybe you look ahead and you wonder if your desires and your hopes can ever be realized. Those longings of the heart that you've been waiting for and haven't happened. Maybe you look around and feel small and powerless. Um, that The line from the hymn, This is my father's world, it goes that though the wrong seems off so strong and we, we put a period there, and that's where we feel today, maybe. It actually goes on and says, God is the ruler yet. But maybe we struggle to believe that today. Or maybe you're just discouraged. Some of us may feel like we have little or nothing to offer. Or you think that God wants more of you and you can't give it. Um, some of us struggle with the amount of ruin that we've carried in our life and wonder if God can really salvage that for the great things that he says that he's going to do through us. Or perhaps you feel a bit like I did this week, these, these things come and go, but uh, I off and on this week felt this, a certain amount of numbness and kind of apathy um, that kind of washed over me, and life just kind of moved along, and I'm doing my part, and that's fine, um, but not really feeling much beyond that. This book of Zechariah, the Zechariah the prophet, um, he receives eight visions in one night. And then he preaches four sermons in this book. And it was 2,000, because he dates it, 2,539 years ago. That's a long, long time, long time. But his times and his experiences, I think we'll find, are really no different than our own. And the things he has to say to us, um, I think, will speak into these very questions. The name Zechariah is a very common one. It means Jehovah remembers. 
And the great message here is that God remembers us and remembers his people. Um, and even though it's a minor prophet and we think it's all about judgment, this particular book, for the most part, it's all about encouragement to build up people in those hard times. So today what we're going to do is um, a bit of a history lesson um, and then uh, a little bit of what was happening in the world of Zechariah at the time. Um, what was his place in it? I'll give an outline of the book. Um, although we're just going to be pulling six lessons out, Jerry Bowen will be doing next week's. Um, but we'll just pull six out of this book. Of It's got 14 chapters. I'll mention a little bit about the themes. And then this tonight I want to walk through um, three things that come out of the first six verses, the introduction to the book. So let me pray, and then we're going to open up this book. Father, I thank you for just the thousands of years that have gone and that you have been at work and you have been faithful. Thank you that your word is still alive and it speaks truth and it touches where we are. And even tonight as we talk a little bit about just repentance and returning to you, that you would stir up our hearts in the ways that are appropriate. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little bit of a, a history um, lesson here so we can kind of be caught up with the nation of Israel because it makes a difference in terms of understanding. So I'm going to um, walk us through this. I, I like this kind of stuff. So if you don't, um, you can play Scrabble or something on your phone for a minute. Um, we, we know most of the stories of the, the kings in the Old Testament, um, that some are good and some are not. Um, when the, the people demanded a king and they got Saul and that was a disaster and then God brought along David and then David uh, after him was Solomon but it, it was short-lived. Any, any glory there was short-lived, and the, the kingdom really quickly divided. 931 B.C., the kingdom divided in the northern kingdom of tribes and, and the southern kingdom. And then the, the, our, the, Goth, the Old Testament traces the kings in both those places and, and all the things that wouldn't happen to, with them. Um, over and over again, they do like we do. They were unfaithful. God calls them an adulterous nation because they were just unfaithful to God over and over again. So God brings all these prophets that we read about in the Old Testament who primarily came to call the people back to God over and over again and would tell them what would happen um, if they didn't. Um, more often than not, it wasn't to condemn them. That wasn't God's intention. God's calling was always because he wanted people. He wanted relationship with them. He wanted to turn their hearts back to him because God desired um, to be connected with them. Uh, the northern kingdom, not the both kingdoms ignored the prophets, but the northern kingdom um, seemed to be worse. The kings got worse and worse and worse. And um, in 722 BC, the Assyrian army came down and they just obliterated the northern kingdom. As a matter of fact, they, 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 it was like a, uh, a like locust that came across the land and just left it like with nothing left, like a, like a storm had come in and just kind of wiped off the land, um, like a atomic bomb had gone off. Um, and they're lost. That whole, all those people are just lost and either killed or carried away. Interesting, the southern kingdom is watching this go on, wondering, are they next, right? And when they, whenever that happens, you're going, we need to, we need to get there. Like, because my oldest brother would get in trouble. And I'd, then, like, the alert was on, like, okay, I could get in trouble too. And so you get on alert, but that didn't last for very long. Like us, they just slid back into their old ways and began not following God as the southern kingdom did. And God started sending prophets to them as well, sending the prophets, call them back, call their hearts back to God over and over and over again. And the end was just about to come 
And then we get the story of the King Josiah. And it's such a great story because Josiah, his heart is turned towards God, his repentance. And the scriptures tell us the heart of one man, this king, spares an entire generation from judgment. But when he dies, it just unravels like fast. It just kind of comes to a very screeching halt. And judgment comes to the southern kingdom. Babylon, who had defeated the Assyrians, is now the major power. And they come in and they take the king. They take uh, Ezekiel the prophet and a number of people, including Daniel, and they take them back to Babylon, and they're taken back. And he sets up this uh, a king named Zedekiah. It was kind of an Israeli king, but he was basically a puppet king. Whatever the Babylonians told him to do, that's what he was supposed to do, and then th they would be okay. Um, but he didn't, and that happened all in 605 B.C., 605 B.C. Um, rather, Zedekiah and the people um, kept disobeying and disobeying and disobeying. One of the main prophets during that time was Jeremiah, who kept calling people back to God, and they hated him for it. They threw him in a well and a hole and treated him badly because of it. And, uh, and finally, Zedekiah um, rebels against Babylon. I don't know what he was thinking, but uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes back in. This is shortly thereafter. And, um, and does the same thing that the Syrians did. He, he decimates the land. Um, those who are old and sick, he leaves behind, but everybody else is carried away. They tear the walls down of the city of Jerusalem, so it's unfortified, has no place. Um, he desecrates the temple, did a bunch of things to the temple and the altar, and then he just took the temple and he took it till it was just rubble and left over and carries everybody back into Babylon for this... Uh, Jeremiah is one of those who's carried back. Um, and then you're in Babylon for 70 years, basically for an entire generation to pass away, kind of like it was in the, the wilderness with the Israelites um, before they could be returned again. In 538 B.C., uh, Babylon falls to the Persians um, and under Cyrus the Great. And um, Cyrus has a different approach to things, and so he actually... Uh, um, commissioned some of the Israelites to go back to their land and begin to rebuild because it's not helping him anyways because it's all wrecked up. You might as well send people back there and begin to develop on behalf of the Persians. So in 537 B.C., a, a small remnant, and it was small because actually after 70 years, a bunch of people didn't want to leave. They were in Babylon, had settled in, they had kind of made peace with their life there, but a small remnant of faithful people returned to Judah and they have one purpose. It was to rebuild the temple. So they were supposed to go back, uh, set up some kind of shelters, and then get busy on the temple because the temple was the picture of the presence of God in their midst. And if the temple was rebuilt, a reminder that God is still with them. And so they were supposed to rebuild, rebuild the temple. Um, you can read about all that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, who actually arrived much later but wrote the history of this time. Um, and they trace, they trace the story of the return, their work in the temple, and later on, the rebuilding of the walls. Um, that group that goes back in 537 B.C. includes a couple of key uh, figures. One was Zerubbabel, and he's made the governor of Judah underneath, uh, underneath um, the, the Persians. And you'll hear about him in the book of Zechariah. We have Joshua, who was uh, declared the high priest, and he goes back with them to oversee the work of the temple, and then we're going to hear about um, Zechariah in this book as well because of it's his words, and we actually see a lot about him. We discovered that Zechariah was born in Babylon, so he's never known the promised land. He's just known 
exile. That's always known. Uh, we discover later on that he's uh, one of the angels calls him a young man, so he's he's young and ready to do something and makes a difference. Um, in contrast with Haggai, who prophesies at the same time, and Haggai was a much older man, so we both did the same thing. Um, he's mentioned by Ezra, the book of Ezra, several times, um, and it's interesting that he's of the house of Levi. So Zechariah is not only a prophet, but he's also a priest and comes from the priestly line of people um, in this book as he speaks to us. And as I said, he's a contemporary of um, an older prophet, um, Haggai. Um, and what, ha we, what happens here um, as they go back, and we discover this from Ezra, um, the book of Ezra, and as well as the book of Haggai, which I taught on here years ago. We had a little building built up here, remember? Um, we had uh, the work on the temple starts, and they do just like us. They're, they're passionate about spiritual things for a while, but they quickly become consumed with their own life and making their own way and, and, and getting comfortable um, because we like being comfortable. And the people are busy, um, but um, the temple gets started, but then it just stops completely. The work in the temple stops, and it stops for 12 years. 12 years, nothing is done on it. And in the meantime, they haven't just built some place to live in, but they've added extensions, they've carpeted the living room, they're building nice kitchens. I mean, they're, they're developing their homes and settling in and creating businesses and, and trying to make a place because they're thinking other people will come back. We've got the first choice here. And they're just building their lives well beyond what they needed towards luxury and the things that they wanted. And they completely neglected um, the rebuilding of the temple. And apathy towards the Lord settles in. They were hindered by some opposition to the building, and perhaps they got discouraged, but they eventually just kind of put it aside and give it up. Um, at this point, there's a new Persian king. His name is Darius the Great. That's not the Darius from the lion's den. It's a different one. Um, and some of the exiles have appealed to him to support what they've done. It's, but it's been 12 years. They can't, they, we discovered they can't find the the little decree that sent them back from Cyrus, but they dig it up and they find it, and Darius supports it. He actually sends financial help to them, and Haggai and Zechariah both come on the scene at that point and begin to um, call the people back to the work. Haggai is more of, of kind of uh, scolds them a bit and challenges them that you need to be about the work, and Zechariah encourages them that God is still in the midst of them, and that... Um, the Haggai and Zechariah both prophesied right about the same time, right around 520, 519 B.C. Um, as I said, Haggai's message is mostly of, of challenge and caution. Zechariah's message is mostly one of encouragement, and it stirs the people up. It's like one of the few times when the people actually listened to the prophets, and they did what they were called to do, and they finished the temple in 516 um, B.C. So that's, uh, that's where we find this book. Interesting enough, after that, we get a period of about 40 years. Nehemiah comes in, they rebuild the walls, and then we hear nothing for 400 years until the Messiah comes. Interesting enough, this book, Zechariah, points to the Messiah over and over and over and over again. By way of uh, outline, for if you're interested in this, um, it's, uh, it starts out, we're going to look at tonight, verses 1 through 6. There's this called repentance. Um, the second section, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 6, we have these eight visions. He received them all in a series of evenings at night. He has these visions, and he writes down what they are, and it's, it's kind of crazy stuff. So we have visions of horses, 
there's horns and there's craftsmen. Um, there's this uh, chapter three is all about some clothing, which I'm going to teach on in a couple weeks. I love that chapter. It's one of my favorites. Um, we have a vision of olive trees. We have a vision of a woman in a basket. And you've got a vision of flying scrolls flying through the air, um, speaking things. So lots of crazy stuff there that are all um, pointing both to what was going on presently, but also looking ahead to another time, particularly when they arrival of the Messiah. And even beyond that, beyond the time that we are in today, looking ahead. Chapters 7 and 8, we get four sermons from Zechariah. And then at the end, um, chapters 9 through 14, what uh, people call two burdens, these these things that God gave him says, you've got to tell, tell this. These are these two burdens I give to you. One of them has to do with the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah and his rejection. And then the second, the last couple chapters, which are just awesome chapters, um, talk about the reign of the Messiah and the restoration that's going to come. So we're going to pick um, six lessons out of that. And the first one is tonight. In terms of themes, interesting, the text in Zechariah moves from, um, talks about Gentile domination, the time of the Gentiles ruling, Israel's time is over, and it's going to move and point towards the time of messianic rule. It's going to talk about the time of persecution, and it's going to move through the book to the time of tr uh, when there's an end to trouble and there's a bringing of peace. And then lastly, it's going to talk about this time of uncleanness, that, that the temple's gone and there's no cleanness, there's, there's no release from iniquity, and it's going to move to the very end when everything is holy. It's not going to talk about just some things holy. Everything becomes holy. The themes are encouragement, the promises of God for his people. Um, I love it. He'll talk a lot about he takes the weak and the insignificant and the unnoticed and makes them great. If you remember Haggai, one of the things in there was people are going, this temple stinks. It's just this little tiny place. It's like a shack in the desert compared to Solomon's place. And Haggai's message is, you have no idea who's going to walk in this place. The God of the universe himself, Jesus, is going to walk in this place and make it great. So lots in here about the weak and insignificant makes, helps us, and God makes it wondrous. Um, the, the theme of the promise of all things new. Interesting, um, uh, besides uh, Isaiah and a couple, of, a couple of those bigger prophet books, um, Zechariah is quoted 40 times, almost 40 times in the New Testament. This is a little book that is just rich with pictures of Jesus and what he's going to do and a great deal of prophecies. So let's look at just the first six verses here tonight. Um, pretty briefly, there's just a few things I want to pull out. Begins here, um, and, and they, they date these things, which makes it really easy for us. It says, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. And Unlike prophecy that we talked about a couple weeks ago, where you, you sense like you have something, an insight from the Lord to share, they received the very words of God given to them, and they were supposed to speak them out. Um, they, were, they, they, they mediated the very words of God. When it says that the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, he's claiming that these are the very words of God being spoken for the people. His direct revelation, and he puts it down here in Zechariah, faithfully not only speaks it, um, but he faithfully, we have it recorded for us today. And it says it's in the second year of Darius. Um, interesting, if you go back, except besides Zechariah and Haggai, most of the prophets all date their prophecies according to Israelite kings. So like Isaiah will say, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we get that all through those other books because they, they believe they were the center 
It was all about them as a people. But here we've moved into a very, very different time. Israel is no longer the center anymore. They are, they are weak. They're just a remnant. Um, they appear to be outside God's attention, which is not true, but it's, it's the time of the Gentiles. It's the time of Israel has ceased and God's presence had departed, and it's this time of Gentile rulership has entered. Um, all the way until when Jesus comes and says the kingdom of heaven is here, and the future day, which is still yet to come, when the kingdom of heaven is fully realized here. We're still in this time. So Zechariah recognizes that they're in a very, very different time. Um, they're a conquered people. They, they get to return, but they're not autonomous anymore. They're under a ruler. They're, they're not the mighty people that they once were, but they're a fragmented and small remnant, weak, probably unnoticed by the world and, and seemingly of little consequence. By the way, when we get to that place, it's where God can use us. Because as long as we think we're mighty, um, God can't speak to us, and they're ready to hear. But the answer that they get is from Zechariah, whose name means Jehovah remembers or God remembers. Um, God does not think the same way we do. He does not see us the same way we see ourselves. Eight times in this handful of verses, if you notice when I read it, I kept saying Lord of hosts over and over again. Host is a huge number. So when it talks about Lord of hosts, it's, it's talking about the, the king, the ruler who, who can just come out and, and take anybody, who could wipe across the world and, and clean it up. Um, it's it's as, as mighty as you name as you can pick. And here, this little book, this little remnant, God calls himself over and over again. He says, remind them, I am the Lord of hosts, and I am in their midst. The strong name of ruling and authority, and that that is a God as we discover through Zechariah, that has not forgotten his people, and he's not forgotten us. So three things here in these chapters, these uh, brief verses here. The first one is there's a call, and the call is real simple. He says, return to me. God speaks his word to the people, and he says, return to me. Remember, they, they were kind of apathetic. They had forgotten it. They had, they had taken this temple, which was supposed to be the picture of God's presence in their midst, and were neglecting it. And God's call, he says, it's my call Return to me. People were living just for themselves. They said the temple work was left undone. The picture of the presence of God in their midst had stayed untouched for over a dozen years. Um, I love this book because this book is all about hope and encouragement. Um, it's all about the love of God. But it start, doesn't start there. It starts with return to me. Return is to turn around. It's, it's the same word we get for repentance. It's to quit going that direction and turn and go to a different direction. Come back to what, call them to come back to what they knew. Um, put first what needs to be first. Um, be aligned once again, he's saying, with what the Lord requires of you. Repentance. They said the, the book had multiple, has multiple messianic prophecies in it about the arrival of Jesus. And you, you think about Jesus, when he showed up, we saw this in Matthew, what was his message? It, it wasn't God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That wasn't his first message, although that's all true. His message was repent, repent, turn, for the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here in your midst. And that's the same message that God gives to these people. It's the same message he gives us to us. They need to turn from their own pursuits. 
And by the way, taking care of their homes, all that they're, maybe they're going, they're going overboard. Taking care of some basic stuff is not is okay. So they had forgotten their primary duty. They needed to turn from their own pursuits. They needed to turn from apathy about the temple. They needed to repent of their fear from the opposition that was probably coming their way and for their apathy about the presence and work of God and had laid it aside instead of making it central. And that's where we have to begin as well. Our, for our lives to be aligned, it, turn, it begins with repentance. It begins with turning. To turn from sin... turn from neglect, perhaps neglecting God or neglecting other things that he's told us are important, um, to, to turn and cast off hardened hearts. Perhaps it's turning from resentment that we have. Perhaps it's just returning from failure just to be listening to the Lord. And we have let all your voices take over can also be a, a return to a rightly ordered heart, to put good things in their right place, to put first things first. Um, we've talked about this before. We, we nibble all day at the things of the world, and it dulls our hunger for God. And we have to turn from that and repent from that. The good news is, as believers, we don't turn and repent to get forgiveness. The forgiveness is already there. Christ has, has saved us and, and clothed us in his righteousness. But if I keep aiming towards sin, I'm just I'm aiming and living off something that's dead. And he calls me to agree with him and come look at him and going, that's just dead stuff. Or those things are in disorder. And Lord, your ways are always right and always true. You begin to walk in those ways. First Timothy 1.5 says this. The aim of our instruction is love. The question comes, so where does that come from? What, what needs to be true for that to reign in us? And he goes on, he says, the aim of our instruction is love, which flows out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The pure heart just means that, we've, um, that we, we're not feeding off those dead things anymore. And we're, we keep coming back and keep looking at the Lord and going, I want to walk with you. Just having that relationship in our own hearts in order that we keep actively turning from the old ways that are dead and agree with God that life is only found in him. That's what it, that's the pure heart. Second of all, it says that we're, it flows from having a good conscience. That means that's all about relationships. As far as I have been able to do, am I at peace with everybody? Have I done everything I can to be at peace? And then lastly, that love will flow in our lives when we have a sincere faith. Sincere faith just means that the things that I'm discovering about God, I'm trying to put them into practice. I may not do it very well, but that's my endeavor. I'm taking the things I know and trying to put them into practice. It's just, those are just three measures to see if we have some repenting in our lives that need to happen, a turning that needs to happen in our hearts as we go a different way sometimes. And so the first call that Zechariah has to the people is turn, just turn. Um, he's there. Second of all is a warning. He gives him a warning. And the warning is don't forget. He says don't forget. And he starts talking about the fathers, the ones that went before them, and how God called them to repent of their evil ways and they ignored him. 
God reminds them of all those who came before. They, they just finished 70 years of exile, which should have been a, a, a huge warning light that this is what happens when we ignore God. And by the way, God kept calling them for hundreds of years. It's like he, he's, he's uh, not impatient. As I said, those returning had, had been born in Babylon, not the promised land. And God reminds them how it came to be that they were there. That God's people for generations had refused to repent. They had refused to align themselves with God. As a matter of fact, 6b here, it says, it says, so they repented. It's talking about the ones that had been exiled. They actually did repent, but they didn't do it until they got to Babylon. When they find, like, boy, this is the very end, and all the consequences have fully come on them, they finally repented. But it was too late. It was too late. The consequences for their sin was already there. And then the, the statement here is, where, what happened to all those people? Where are your fathers, he says. And the answer is, they've all passed away. And the prophets are all gone. Second Chronicles 36, verses 15 through 17 says this. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God's heart was for his people and to protect his place where he could dwell in their midst. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, on these things happened to them as an example and they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the day of rebellion, in the day of testing. Similar to the Israelites, after the exile, um, the, um, the Israelites who came out of Egypt and then they rebelled, what did they do? They ended 40 years in the desert going in circles, leaving bodies buried in the desert. And their message was the same thing. Remember, remember, don't forget. Don't forget the ruin that we bring to ourselves when we leave the Lord out of the picture. Um, or sometimes it's we bring ruin even just by taking good things and putting them in his place because that's not how we're made to work. And so God's calling here is um, turn. And then he's saying, don't forget. Don't forget what comes. And for us as believers who are now clothed in righteousness of Christ, we are, we are his children forever. And yet we can play in a different place apart from enjoying the good gifts he has. And there's, there's ruin that comes to us, even as the Father continues to love us and we're his children. Don't forget. And then lastly, he gives a promise. He gives a promise. Verse 6, his words remain. It's interesting here. It says, where are your fathers? Well, they've died. Verse 5, and, and what about the prophets? They live forever. And the answer is no. As a matter of fact, shortly thereafter, there'll be 400 years where there'll be no prophets to call the people back until John the Baptist shows up. But he says to him, he says, but my words, this is God talking, and my statutes, did they not overtake your fathers? Eventually, they didn't listen, they didn't listen, but eventually the words kept coming through and repented because the words remained. God's words remained. 
It said the prophets are no longer there. Much of what came before has been torn down. The walls are gone. The temple does not look the same. But God says his words, his statutes still speak. They keep speaking. He keeps calling them forward. Tozer says that God is always speaking to those who would have the hearts and minds and ears to listen. And we too today have his very words spoken to us who lead us, who guide us, encourage us, and, and we're called to pay attention because we still have his words. And then secondly, we have a promise of his presence. What does he say? He says, return to me and I will return to you. The fact is God is always there and for us, he's always there. Um, I know John O'Hare has used an example a few times, but when, when we, before Christ, we have this, this wall of sin that stands between us and God, and there is, no, there is no coming. We are separated. And the cross, which removes that, that wall between us, and um, when we come in faith, that separation is taken away and the Holy Spirit takes residency. That will never come between us again. The New Testament is explicit about that. We are forever his children. We are ever clothed in his righteousness. We'll see that in chapter 3 here. And, and there is free access. But we look that way all the time. We look that way all the time. And his, his words are, you return to me, I return to you. The great news is he's already there. He hasn't ever left. The Holy Spirit's always there. But our, our minds and attention go elsewhere. And the promise is he's always with us. He's always with us. The message for these people starts with return to me and repent, but it doesn't end there. He, before they even start feeling bad about it, he goes, God will return to you. He just brings that message in right on the heels of it. And the rest of the book is all about that. There's a promise of his presence. Interesting enough, God had removed his presence from the temple way before the temple was destroyed. They, they, were, they were doing sacrifice, and there was no presence of God. The, God's Shekinah glory had departed. Enough, it, was, it was an empty building. And they're doing all this stuff. One of the complaints they said to Haggai is that the people said this temple is nothing. And the great promise is his presence is actually going to be in that place. Jesus is going to walk into that temple. And maybe nobody will know it, but the glory of God will be there. He says, remember, I'm always there. My presence is going to be there. Something more glorious than anything they've ever seen or heard about before will one day be in that temple. And the great message of Zechariah is for us today. Jehovah remembers. He draws near. Um, he's here. One of the reasons we light the candles, they're not just to be pretty, though I like candles, but just to remind us that God is in our midst all the time. James 4a, draw near to God, and, and he draws near to us. And the table that we have is supposed to remind us of that every single week. He is present and, and he is at work. So we're called to turn. Um, we're reminded of his presence. We're called to remember what happens when we go our own way. We're reminded of his promises, of his word, and of his presence and work in our life. And the book just opens it up for us as we go always there for us. Brian, you guys can uh, make your way up here. Let's just close our eyes just for a moment.
and whether it's whether it's now or tonight, um, if you're a believer, um, the righteousness of God, Christ, you're clothed in it. Um, his presence is tangible because the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. Um, but we may not be living in the fullness of his gifts because we've given place to other things. Whether the idols in our heart, those, those things that we know are not of him, that we need to repent of, uh, perhaps the good things that we've allowed taking places that they should not have. Um, maybe a relationship that you need to step into and do your part in making it right. Maybe it's just paying a little more attention to the Lord this week and you've just not paid attention this week. Just um, in your own quietness of your own heart, offer up maybe some prayers of returning to him or maybe just ask him to show those things to you. We thank you for your constant abiding presence intimately in our midst, dwelling in our own hearts. Thank you that your word and your spirit um, are always speaking realigning us with your ways and your purposes and your heart. Make us a people that are easily turned towards that. Take away our resistant feet at times, our cluttered minds. Give us a, a love for your voice rather than the other voices that we hear that and sometimes be so much louder that we might enjoy uh, the full fruits of your gifts that you've, you're pouring out constantly into our lives. We offer ourselves to you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.